This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Boston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the treatment of seasonal allergies with clinical pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll talk about options for dealing with obesity with Dr. Shantanu Gaur. We'll find out whether there's such a thing as a healthy snack with registered dietitian Shauna Lindzen. And lastly, we'll learn about a new documentary on antibiotic overuse with the producers Sarah Schenk and Stephen Lawrence. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. As major airline officials predict another record summer air travel season, a new analysis from the Boston University School of Public Health has found that exposure to even moderate levels of airplane noise may disrupt sleep, building upon a growing body of research on the adverse health effects of environmental noise. People who are exposed to airplane noise at levels as low as 45 decibels were more likely to sleep less than seven hours per night. As a frame of reference, the sound of a whisper is 30 decibels, a library setting is 40 decibels, and this conversation right now is 50 decibels. It's generally accepted that we will lose muscle strength and slow down as we age, making it more difficult to perform simple tasks such as getting up, walking, and sitting down. But new Edith Cowan University research indicates this could also be a signal for another health concern of aging, late-life dementia. To investigate the relationship between muscle function and dementia, the research team used data to examine more than 1,000 women with an average age of 75. They measured the women's grip strength and the time it took for them to rise up from a chair, walk three meters, turn around, and sit back down, known as a timed up-and-go tug test. These tests were repeated over five years to monitor any loss of performance. Over the next 15 years, almost 17% of women involved in the study were found to have had a dementia event categorized as a dementia-related hospitalization or death. The team found that lower grip strength and a slower tug test result were significant risk factors for presenting with dementia, independent of genetic risk and lifestyle factors such as smoking, alcohol intake, and physical activity levels. Reports of near-death experiences, with tales of white light, visits from departed loved ones, hearing voices, among other attributes, capture our imagination and are deeply ingrained in our cultural landscape. The fact that these reports share so many common elements begs the question of whether there is something fundamentally real underpinning them, and that those who have managed to survive death are providing glimpses of a consciousness that does not completely disappear even after the heart stops beating. A new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science provides early evidence of a surge of activity correlated with consciousness in the dying brain. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? 
Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait, go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. Andy is active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he is the Prescribed Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health InfoWay. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. For more information, you visit thehealthdepot.ca. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing, Jamie? Good to be back. Yeah, rough night for me last night. Oh, uh, no? Yeah, no, my allergies were driving me bobanas that time of year. It is, but I'm also reading online that global warming is impacting, you know, not just water levels and temperatures, but it's making it like even harder for allergy sufferers. Like I thought like Toronto and surrounding areas was the allergy epicenter of the universe, but apparently it's going to get worse. Which makes sense. As we get warmer, allergens come a lot sooner and stay for a lot longer. Yeah. And it does seem, it does seem early to me, right? Like I've been doing, I've been doing gardening, which is like three or four weeks early, but you know, with that comes the allergies. So are there any pharmacist recommended activities that we can do to prepare for the next few months, which are, you know, allergy time? Absolutely. So yeah, I'm looking out my window right now and I'm seeing a whole bunch of dandelions. That's one of my allergens. I'm just like you. I'm really, I have really bad allergies as well. Besides just complete avoidance, right. And not being outside, you know, where all the allergens are, Staying indoors with air conditioning can help, but I mean, we can't lock ourselves away for all spring and summer. So often that you, unfortunately, it's your body's reaction to a tiny little microscopic allergen getting in your body and your body freaks out and overreacts. So often you do need some medication help for that, whether or not it's antihistamines, nasal steroids, or even inhaled steroids, depending on where you're getting the symptoms for your allergies. Absolutely. Okay, so there's no exercises, there's no food for us to eat, there's no meditation or mindfulness that we're going to do, unless, you know, it stops you from scratching itches. Yeah, unfortunately, it's more that, you know, if it gets inside your body, your body's unfortunately predisposed to just overreact. And like for myself, uh, ragweed is my worst. And Mine too. Every, oh my God, I can tell you the day in the summer <laughs> that it hits. Sometimes it's the last week of July, first week of August. But once it hits, it goes solidly for me until the very first solid frost, which is often it's later and later every year, but right. it's like often the end of uh, October, early November. Yeah. Right. It's weird. I, I have same thing. Like I have a lot of tree pollens and weed pollens and I actually had to clear my yard of all grass and everything just to sort of make my environment more friendly to my allergies in part. So I get it first thing in the spring. And then like you, I have ragweed issues and I just pray for the first frost, which is perverse. I know. And it's because like the problem is even you can do as much as you can to reduce the concentration around your yard. But when it comes to like ragweed, it flies like, of course, yeah, tens of kilometers, hundreds, like hundreds of kilometers in the wind. You know, like it's very tough to avoid. Uh, Absolutely. I, I know. Okay. So part of the problem with the beginning part of spring is we're never quite ready for the allergies. 
So what happens is, you know, you start getting symptoms. And then the first thing that you do is you go to your medicine cabinet. And of course, you haven't bought any allergy medicine for some time. So (laughs) are expired medications dangerous? And can we use them if we're desperate and it's the only thing we have? So it's like one of those yes and no. It's best to talk to your pharmacist because... The majority of medications, yes. What an expiry date first, what it means is manufacturers have determined at the normal storage condition for that medication. So for like allergy pills, it's room temperature, 20 to 25 degrees. For insulin, it's like fridge temperature, four to eight degrees, right? But it's a set date that they've determined through studies that over 90% of the, of the drug is in its active state still. Because as time goes by, drugs wear down and break down and they don't work as well. So what that expiry date can mean is that, yeah, like if, for instance, like you have a headache, Tylenol, if it's uh, been past expiry date and it's like uh, extra strength Tylenol, 500 milligrams, if it's depends on how long, you don't know how much of the active drug is still in it. Right. It's they just don't guarantee 90% is in the active form. So you may only get 400 milligrams or it could be 300 milligrams. It could be a regular strength Tylenol, but you don't really know. So certain drugs, that's not a big issue. Right, a lot of topicals, for instance. But for prescription drugs, you have to be very careful because a lot of times for heart medication, diabetes medications, you need a very specific dose for yourself. Right. That, that's why we definitely recommend you get a new medication. But now when it comes to, there are some medications that the byproduct, the breakdown product is a little more toxic and not good. Thankfully, 95, 98% of medications aren't that way. But that's why it's always good to check with your pharmacist. Give them a quick call. But for most antihistamines, they're safe. Like, you know, your Claritins, Reactins, Arius's. It just means you won't get as high of a dose. I would recommend take one of those, but then try to go get a new pack as soon as possible, just so you can get that reliable dosing. Okay, so if we find that we have expired or perhaps long expired medications, do we just flush them down the toilet or is there a different way to dispose of them? Or can we just put them in the garbage? Like, what's the protocol? Heaven forbid, no. (laughs) Do not flush them down the toilet or put them into the garbage because even garbage dump sites will seep into the groundwater. You don't want that. So bring them back to your pharmacy. Most pharmacies, you can look it up, are part of the Health Product Stewardship Association program that they, you, you can call and ask them, do you take back expired medications? It doesn't even have to be your pharmacy, right? Okay. The one that you actively go to. If they're a part of that program, the government funds it, and you can bring in all your expired medication to them where they will safely put in a pail and send off to be incinerated. So at these safe sites that will make sure that there's nothing left so it can't seep into our groundwater and drinking water, so which is very important. We don't want a lot of chemicals and different drugs getting into our drinking water. Okay. Do we need to speak to our doctors about this or like should we? It's your pharmacist, definitely. Okay. Speak to your pharmacist. They're the ones who know a lot about medications. And it's a great opportunity too when you bring them in to even try to ask them about certain medications. What else could help you with your symptoms? Because as you kind of mentioned, often... We notice about expired medications at the time when we actually need them. Right, exactly. (laughs) So it's good to find out another potential, something that might be able to help out more. They could do a med review, go over all your meds to make sure that what you're taking is actually reacting well within your body. Because as we age, too, I kind of mentioned in previous sessions with you that meds can react differently in our body. So if you've been taking the same dose for 20, 30 years, you might need to reassess that. 
And for allergies specifically, there's certain like allergy pills a lot of people don't realize won't even help you out much if you have allergies in your nose or allergies in your lung. Like if you have very big congestion, I didn't even realize this for years. Like I, I'm in a doctor family, right? My dad's a full-time physician. I had terrible allergies where in the fall around ragweed season, I would literally have to prop myself up with four or five pillows and I'd have like snot dripping down my nose yeah. at nighttime. And I would be taking, and my recommendation from my dad, who's a doctor, right? He was saying like, just take the over-the-counter Arius or Claritin, but it didn't really even make a dent. Well, when I went and got into pharmacy school, I learned more why, and it was more in university, I started finally taking nasal steroids, that over-the-counter antihistamines, the second-generation ones, which is Claritin, Reactant, and Arius, like it's like if you, out of five stars to help you with your nose, yeah. it's like 0.5 stars out of five stars, okay. whereas a nasal steroid's five out of five. Unless like I'm completely overwhelmed, I don't like taking any medications because I find the side effects are often not worth it. But there's no way I would take one of these over-counter medications if I knew there was zero chance it's going to help me. But Exactly. And it's also the issue of it going, if you take a pill, it goes yeah. all over your whole body. Right. Whereas like a topical, like a, a topical steroid for a short period of time in your nose is locally helping your nose and not going to get those side effects throughout the rest of your body. Okay, fair enough. I mean, but I, I've had eczema my entire life. It used to be bad when I was really young. So I had specific prescribed medications, for example, for topical issues, which was yes. separate and apart from how I would deal with, you know, stuffy noses and, you know, watery dry, dry eyes, watery eyes, you know, like it's, it's a little bit of both. So because I get allergies every year, I tend to like, you know, the, the first course of action before I'm going to get a prescription drug is to get the over-the-counters. But you seem to be saying that I probably should be going for a prescription drugs. Is that really the message? or? Well, it depends on what your allergies are. And that's why okay. it's best to talk to a healthcare professional like a pharmacist that really know a lot about the medications. So as I mentioned to you, if you have just itchy eyes, yeah, yeah the antihistamines that you take, the second generation ones, the Claritins and whatnot, help your eyes a lot, definitely. A little itch on your skin for sure. But when it comes to your nose or if you're having trouble breathing, because like I even get tightness in my chest when I go outside with ragweed, that you need something more significant like an inhaled steroid or a nasal steroid because it deals with that well where the antihistamine doesn't really help out. Uh, and, you know, it's those second generation antihistamines help out with that, it, it, like with the eyes and whatnot. But, you know, sometimes people, you know, Benadryl, if you have a really bad allergic uh, attack, you can reach for a Benadryl that's a little more significant, but it's yeah. something you don't, we talked about that last session. You don't want to be taking that regularly. It's like a one-off for severe allergic reaction because it's extremely anticholinergic. They don't want to be taking that on a daily basis because it can cause a ton of side effects and even that it's issues with your sleep long-term, giving you poor sleep quality that can eventually lead to, if you take regularly, declining cognition. Yeah. All right, so if we're talking about symptoms that are specific let's you know people just reach for pills so yeah. so like you're talking about a steroid my concern about a steroid would be like diminishing returns over time and also it thins your your membranes is that accurate like is, is that a potential risk or am i off yes base? so that's why it's cycling through seasons so i okay. find i i tough it out with the steroid like you know if yeah. i have 
a little bit of stuffiness during the winter, and I save my steroid use for ragweed season. <laughs> so okay, for yeah. like inhaled and nasal, because I can't cope without it. You do not want to be taking them full. Uh, like so, if you use steroid, steroid on your skins too often, it can thin the skin. Yep. Just like your nose, your mucous membrane in your nose. They find that doesn't have near the same effect in your lungs, though. You have one layer of cells in your lungs, so inhaled steroids not. If you need them, you need to take them. But using it during periods of time that's really bad, you can take it for a few months at a time. Just make sure you go on steroid holidays where you allow your skin and, and cells to recover. You just don't want to be taking them every single day for like five, ten years, right? You need to have just use them when you need to. And it's, and it's a slow buildup effect often. So nasal steroids and inhaled steroids usually start really, they help a little bit each day and it's a buildup effect that it can take five to seven days for it to really start working. So you just need to be patient with them, but they work great. Yeah. Okay, what other options are there other than inhalants? So, in the, yeah, besides that, obviously we mentioned the pills, yep. right? Sometimes people reach for a decongestant, right? And mm-hmm. I caution this. So there's a lot of, you'll see Claritin with nasal, sinus. Anything that says sinus has a decongestant in it if it's over the counter. The issue that those can have is that decongestants help you for three to five days. What they do is they constrict the blood flow to that area, right? Which makes it less that you will have overreactions to allergens. But our body after about three to five days will try to fight that in what you get something called rebound congestion. Right. Yep. And then it's actually the drug itself that's causing the congestion. So that's why taking an over-the-counter product for colds makes sense if you're having a cold for three to five days for symptoms. But when it's for allergies, I think it's terrible. I, I, would, I want those off the shelves in pharmacies because just the fact that it's combined with Claritin makes people think that you can take that every day for, for months and you shouldn't because it's causing a problem and it causes your blood pressure to spike and your body adapts over time. So it's best short term. So now, having said that, if you have a really bad allergy kicking in, what you can do is, because I told you steroids take, you know, three to five days before they really start kicking in, you can maybe take, you know, even like a nasal decongestant for three days as your steroids are starting to kick in and work better, and then stop taking them and continue on with your steroids if you need to. Yeah. Depends on how bad your allergies are, for sure. When I was younger, I once got addicted to like what was called nose drops. And now there's generic forms, but like it was Otrovin because, yes. I, because I, you know, it, it would help constrict the blood vessels in my nose because it's an acid. And then, but of course, the rebound effect was if I stopped taking it, I'd be completely congested without any mucus even. It would just sort of expand and screw me up. Can you use them in a limited capacity or, or is that a no-go? Yeah, that's where you really, it's short terms and then on a long holiday. So as I kind of mentioned, like with the decongestants, it's really three to five days. You need to cut it off after that or your body does adapt and it starts to make you congested. That's the issue with decongestants for sure. And also I have to caveats, you know, you always have to talk to your pharmacist about any of the listeners about your individual needs. If you have heart disease and you have heart arrhythmia, you can't take the oral decongestants period because that can really spike your blood pressure too. So you need, that's why you always should go over this and the options with your pharmacist. They can really help pinpoint in. And that, that's why that med review, even going over that regularly with your pharmacist, those are the kind of questions you want to bring up. Because it's very important not when you're going over your prescription drugs to talk about your over-the-counter needs as well and your other conditions that are just not your regular chronic. But, yeah, I have bad allergies. You bring that up with your, your pharmacist because they can really help to steer you to what options to avoid and which ones can really help you out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure, Jamie. Looking forward to being on again. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Managing type 1 diabetes isn't easy. You have to make countless choices every day. Life just got a little easier. Medtronic's Minimed 780G system is designed to give you more control with less effort. Integrated with continuous glucose monitoring, it's the only system that automatically adjusts insulin delivery every five minutes based on glucose levels. If you're currently on multiple daily injections or an insulin pump, find out more about the Minimed 780G system at www.medtronicdiabetes.ca. The system uses SmartGuard technology. Individual results may vary, and some user interaction is required. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Shantanu Gore graduated summa cum laude with a BS in biology from Harvard College and with an MD from Harvard Medical School, where he was a Paul Revere Frothingham Scholar and a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. He's a proud first-generation Canadian of Indian descent, and he is an inventor of over 40 patents and has authored multiple peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Gore has been featured on CNBC and Bloomberg and invited to speak on obesity and medical device innovation at numerous worldwide events. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on, Jamie. Well, I think it's really timely. There's a drug out there, which in Canada, you know, we can't say the name or we can't, we can't discuss what the drug does. But I think now with all the press, everybody knows what Ozempic does. But it's just one of the options for people living with obesity for whom diet and exercise doesn't work. Can we go through what the options are for people like that for whom diet and exercise just isn't an option? Obesity is um, a really chronic disease, and it's a complex disease that has really complex underlying biology. And so when I was at Harvard uh, studying to become a doctor and actually starting Olurion, we got very interested in how you actually go about treating obesity. And obviously, first-line therapy is diet and exercise. Uh, almost everyone tries it, but very few people end up satisfied with the outcomes. And the question is often, what next? What can you do after uh, you try diet and exercise? And we live in a world now where there are actually quite a few options, and not every option is suitable for every sort of patient or every sort of consumer, but there are multiple options available. The way I see the world, there's a stepwise approach that you can take uh, as you move through the different options beyond diet and exercise. First, there's very non-invasive, very simple devices like the intragastric balloon uh, and other devices that can be uh, administered without any systemic side effects and without any complications or very few complications and can be done relatively easily and, and very conveniently. And then the next step up might be weight loss drugs like Ozempic, although there are very many different types of weight loss drugs that are out there. 
the issue with some of these weight loss drugs is that they can be very expensive. In the United States, these drugs are over $1,000 a month. In Canada, they're a little bit more affordable, but still a few hundred dollars a month. They can lead to side effects. You have to inject yourself with the drug once a week. And typically, patients really need to take these drugs for a lifetime uh, in order to keep the weight off. And with longer-term use, you start seeing the potential for very serious side effects, thyroid cancer, pancreatic cancer among them. So the drugs are not something to be taken lightly. They need to be really prescribed with a doctor involved. And they're really not for everyone, but they can be a good option for some. And then you have the option of bariatric surgery, which can be very effective for someone who has uh, severe obesity. But if you look at the data, only 1% of people who actually qualify for bariatric surgery go on to get it because they're afraid of the complications, they're afraid of the side effects, and and frankly, uh, it's quite expensive when it isn't reimbursed. And when it is reimbursed, you might have to wait several years, especially in Canada, to even get the surgery or get consulted on it. So. We do live in a, in a world where there are a lot of different options for patients, but you really have to go through a stepwise approach to find the right one. You touched upon some of the side effects of gastric bypass. Can you sort of summarize them? Like what sort of complications are there? For gastric bypass surgery and really any type of uh, weight loss surgery, you can incur a lot of side effects. You know, you're going through a pretty invasive surgery, uh, whether it's laparoscopic or or open abdominal surgery. Uh, You could get infections at the surgical site. You can have uh, the potential for malnutrition if uh, the patient's diet isn't managed uh, correctly. Uh, You can have all sorts of issues in your intestines, whether it's obstruction or uh, other mechanical issues that may actually require a reoperation. And so, uh, as you can imagine, surgery is not something to be taken lightly. Neither is the anesthesia uh, that you need to get as part of the surgery. People who have a higher BMI and who are struggling with obesity, they're actually more likely to have complications from anesthesia, whether they're cardiovascular complications or or something else like a heart attack. So surgery, uh, like drugs, can lead to systemic side effects. And it's, again, not something to be taken lightly. And the point here really is, no matter what you choose, whether it's uh, our intragastric balloon, which is now on the market in Canada, whether it's a drug, whether it's a surgery, it has to be accompanied with a behavior change program. Uh, and ideally a remote patient monitoring solution. Because without that, you really can't get lifelong results that actually last. The way you treat obesity in the long run is actually by changing your lifestyle and changing your behavior. And these therapies, whether it's a balloon, drug, or surgery, are a means to that end. And so when you look at this universe of options that patients and consumers have available to them, really none of them, uh, except for what we developed at Allurion, comes with a full program and a full package to help patients over the course of a lifetime. Can you explain what the difference is between uh, bypass surgery, which may or may not involve a sleeve, and a gastric balloon? Bypass surgery uh, and sleeve surgery and lap band surgery all fall under the category of uh, bariatric or weight loss surgery. There are different techniques used for different types of patients, but they all effectively accomplish the same thing, which is they restrict the volume of the stomach. uh, And in the case of gastric bypass, they actually lead to differences in how nutrients uh, are absorbed, which also assists in weight loss. The primary effect, though, is is really driven by uh, restricting the volume of the stomach. So surgery does that by actually removing part of the stomach so that your actual stomach is lower in volume and can't actually accommodate as much food. 
the gastric balloon does that by actually filling up the stomach. And what we've developed at Allurion is a balloon that actually can be swallowed in a capsule. It doesn't require any procedures, no endoscopy, no anesthesia, obviously no surgery. It can be placed in a 15-minute office visit, and once the balloon is inside your stomach and it's filled up through our tube, you actually have most of your stomach's volume full. There's a half a liter size uh, water-filled balloon sitting inside your stomach. And importantly, our balloon's not absorbed into your bloodstream. It has no systemic side effects, but it stays inside your stomach and helps you feel full, just like removing part of your stomach would do. And the sort of beauty and elegance around the solution is that unlike surgery, which is, can lead to permanent modifications to your digestive tract, our balloon degrades and passes out of the body four months later, and it's paired with a behavior change program and remote patient monitoring solution that actually helps you change your lifestyle and change your behavior so that the 30 pounds on average that you lose over four months actually can be maintained over a long period of time. The issue that often happens with surgery is that a patient will get the surgery, their lifestyle isn't modified, their behavior isn't changed, and they end up putting the weight back on. And unfortunately, at that point, the patient's really at the end of the road uh, and can't really have any other interventions. So with a balloon, you say that it degrades and then it passes. Is the balloon then replaced or is it the intent that the behavior changes after four months, thus another balloon isn't required? We've treated now over 100,000 patients around the world uh, with our balloon program, and our average weight loss is 15 kilograms or 30 pounds on average in four months. Our patients will maintain 95% of that weight loss at one year, and that's because they will continue to use our behavior change program and our remote patient monitoring solution. There's all sorts of AI and machine learning uh, built into there to keep the patient engaged and keep their weight off. If the patient wants to lose additional weight or if they need some help maintaining uh, their uh, weight loss, they can always come back and get another balloon. One of the, the beauties now that we're available in Canada is we're actually starting to see that sort of come to life and evolve um, as we uh, launch uh, even further inside Canada. Every patient has a different need. Every patient has a different weight loss goal. The beauty of uh, the balloon solution is that it's temporary, so it can be repeated but it's also paired with a program that can lead to longer lasting and in some cases, lifelong results. Is there a limit on how many times you can put a balloon in? No, there's no limit. In fact, we've had patients who have used our balloon serially over the course of several years. And that's sort of the point, you know, obesity is a, a lifelong chronic disease. Even if you don't have clinical obesity, maybe you're just overweight, people struggle with their weight for the entirety of their lives. You have uh, issues that come up as you age that make it even more difficult to lose weight. And so the idea behind the Lurion is we've created a program that can be repeated, can be modified through the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning, actually can be personalized to each and every single patient. And that's really the future of weight loss care. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, but solutions can be tailored and personalized so that they can provide the maximal benefit for the maximum number of patients. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Shantanu Gur. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss whether there's such a thing as a healthy snack on the tonic. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. 
proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. My next guest, Shauna Linson, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She is a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find her list of nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinson.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you? Good. So I wouldn't say this is like a question for the ages, like, you know, chicken and the egg or the, or the tree that falls in the forest and nobody's there. But I want to explore whether, you know, there's such a thing as a healthy snack slash treat and or, and I guess that leads to the question, is there a difference between snacks and treats? There actually is. So when you look at a snack, the definition I would say is any food that's eaten between your main meals. And you may think of things like cookies, candy, chips, but then we might be going into the treat category. So a treat, I would say, is something special, like it's a less nutritious option that typically doesn't provide a lot of healthy nutrients. So lots of people think that if you're putting like in a kid's school lunch or if you're having something between meals that a cookie, candy, or chips is a snack, it's more of a treat, so it's, yeah. it's interesting. What do you normally choose if you're going to choose a snack? I'm a man of many moods. So <laughs> when I'm being good, a snack is going to look like an apple or mm-hmm. a handful of peanuts, maybe. And when I'm not, you know, Naomi's quite a baker. So sometimes my self-control isn't quite there. Or sometimes, you know, like in the true sense of the word treat, I'm either having a rough time or a bad day. And I have been known to use foods to enhance my mood, and it might devolve into ice cream or cookies, etc. So yeah, and as long as you have like a good healthy diet, which I know you do, for the meal times, it's okay to have that treat like on occasion. And I personally think that it's really important to snack like lots of people think that It's a negative thing. There's like a negative connotation behind it. But I believe that it's very important to snack, for instance, like every three to four hours, just to make sure you're not getting into that sluggish mode and making sure you maintain like a consistent blood sugar level. I I would agree with you. I mean, like just to put it out there, the, the opposing school of thought, the extreme would be like, those who, you know, only eat meals or who are practicing intermittent fasting and and they might, they might have a snack within their window, Mm -hmm. but typically their windows are so narrow that that's not the way they eat. I would say this though, if you are snacking, those calories still count if you're trying to maintain a certain weight or you're Mm -hmm. trying to lose weight, for example. And so you can't really kid yourself. If you're going to have snacks, then you also can't have big meals too 
if you're trying to reach certain goals, right? Like everything has to be balanced. Yeah, and you have to find out what works for you because some different types of plans, like for instance, intermittent fasting can backfire. Like I don't, you know, some people swear by it. I don't think I personally can ever do it because it would take the enjoyment out of food. I would be looking forward (laughs) too much to that time period that I can eat and it would psychologically not be a good thing for me. So, you know, that brings us to the point of it's a very individual thing in terms of timing and snacking and what types of snacks you could benefit from to control your blood sugar levels. So it's it's very individual, this topic. Well, you know, for me, if I am snacking after dinner, that mm-hmm. tends to be when that tends to be when I put on weight. And for years, people told me, no, it doesn't matter when you're snacking, it doesn't matter when you eat. But then recently, there have been some studies that actually agree with my theory. And it has to do with, you know, your your hormones and how they work vis-a-vis your sleep patterns. So yeah. for me, you know, I have to be very careful about how late I eat and if I'm snacking after dinner. Yes, and your our happy hormone, the serotonin, tends to be lower at night. And that's why, you know, research shows that people tend to snack more at night. And when I assess people's diet patterns, I do see that trend that people do tend to, you know, snack too much. It's not like we're snacking at, you know, 10 in the morning and overdoing it, that type of thing. It's it's mostly mid-afternoon when there's a drop in our blood sugar levels, as well as our serotonin levels, as well as into the evening. So sometimes I will work out mid-afternoon and Mm -hmm. I either will eat something before or after. So it's kind of unique to my patterns as well. You know, particularly on the weekends, I may not work out till early afternoon. And I've already had lunch and dinner may not be for, you know, four or five hours. I make sure that I am replenishing the nutrients that I've used up with the workouts. The other thing is like for the first time in my life, I'm actively trying to put on weight. I think, you know, I had sort of a medical episode recently. Mm -hmm. uh, And as a result, I lost uh, 30 pounds in three weeks. Which oh, is, wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I'm back sort of towards what is my normal weight, although I still love food, but my ability to eat is different than the way it used to be for better or for worse. So it's so interesting. you're recalibrating. Yeah. You know, in some ways it might be a good thing. So what are some of the examples that will help you control your, your blood sugars and or elevate your mood? So these are snacks that are providing positives. Mm-hmm. So I would look for snacks that include a protein source, a fat source, and a fiber source. So good examples mm-hmm. of that would be like a latte with granola bites or, for instance, cheese and crackers or hummus and carrots, yogurt and an apple. And as you mentioned, you say that for your snacks, you would do an apple and nuts. So all of those examples have really healthy fats fiber, protein, nut butter. So I like, for instance, like a rice cake with almond butter and sliced banana or even edamame beans. That's a fantastic snack and people tend to forget about that, but it's a real high quality protein source. And the key with a lot of these foods are their nutrients slash satiety of the food you're eating is going to last a lot longer than if you take a cookie or something that's been processed which exactly. will give you that that sugar rush 
but then you're going to find yourself craving more pretty soon thereafter. Yeah. And if you are to choose a cookie, try to choose one that has um, rolled oats in it, also walnuts or any other like almonds, any other sort of nut. So it's more like a mixed food, like the more healthy fats, the lower the percentage of sugar. So you just want to choose something that like has a little bit of health in it if you are going to choose a cookie as a snack, for instance. Yeah. I mean, unless stuff is homemade, like as, as soon as I'm reaching into a box, I'm fairly certain I'm not eating a healthy snack. I mean, I think that's the truth of it. And so with that, like I'm cognizant of that. And it's okay, right? Like nobody's perfect, Mm -hmm. but I think you have to do it with your eyes open. Exactly. Um, And you want to go more towards the whole foods as a snack. So an example of a whole food would be an apple. A processed food would be applesauce. And an ultra processed food would be, let's say, applejack cereal. So the last example would be reaching into a box. And the first example is like reaching from a tree, right? So you want to try to go more towards the whole foods than the ultra processed foods when you're thinking of snacks to choose from. Right. Okay. So like those are the snacks when you are at home and the kitchen is there and the pantry is there. What do you recommend if you're sort of away from all that? You're on the go. Yeah, still the concepts remain the same. So as I mentioned at the beginning, like a latte will give you some milk, like any type of milk or milk alternative. And then anything with like an oat in it, like a granola bite or something like that. And there are always like if you go into the coffee shops, you can always get a banana or an apple with a handful of nuts. There's always like little packages of nuts or packages of like freeze dried fruit or something like that. So Don't forget that like fluid, like drinks can give you some nutrients. You just have to think about it when you order it when you're out. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes if you know you're going to be somewhere, you know, you can take it with you. You just kind of have to plan a bit. It's all about planning, I think. That, that's yeah, sort of like my you take. can throw a cheese stick in your bag, that type of thing, or in your glove compartment. So cheese and nuts and yogurt's always a good option. To be honest, lately I've been seeing like a lot of hard-boiled eggs out there. So like eggs and crackers and grapes, like a little protein pack at the coffee shops. And that's actually a fantastic snack because you get a bit of everything in there. Yeah. One warning. If you're, if you're throwing cheese or hard boiled eggs into your glove compartment, just remember that the it is there. Pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thanks so much it. for coming on the show today. <laughs> Food safety. Number one. Thanks for having me. That was Shauna Lindzen. For more information about Shauna, visit shaunalindzen.com. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Stephen Lawrence is a producer, director, and media pioneer who's been making documentaries for over 30 years about artists, activists, 
and everyday heroes, from underground Soviet rockers to Senegalese rapper fighting FGM to cat rescuers in Brooklyn, and now scientists racing to save the human microbiome. For more information about Stephen and his work, you can visit his website at stephen-lawrence.com. Sarah Schenk is a writer, director, and producer who is deeply passionate about using filmmaking to advance public health goals for diverse audiences. She makes shorts for nonprofit organizations, including the Park Slope Food Co-op, Planned Parenthood, Amnesty International, the New York City Public Schools, and Supportive Housing Network, where she served as Chief Digital Officer. While working at the NYC Controller's Senior Policy Advisor for Education, where she received a commendation for excellence in public service, she taught herself filmmaking. That's pretty amazing. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Stephen. How are you? Great. Good to be here. Fine, thank you. Delighted. So your documentary is called Invisible Extinction. What were the reasons for making that film? Well, I have two kids. And when my younger child was two years old, she ate a pecan cookie and she almost died. In the emergency room, I said, well, she's eaten nuts before. What happened now? Mm -hmm. And the doctors there said, we have no idea. We don't know why people get allergies. Every so often they lose allergies, and we don't have any other information to give you, but try not to get her exposed to nuts. That's fascinating. You know, we had the same situation with my son. We had to rush him to emergency. He had an anaphylactic reaction to cashews that we knew nothing Uh, about when he was a toddler. So I'm there. I hear you. Go on. (laughs) So it's a very um, galvanizing moment for a parent to see your child struggling to live and to hear that an otherwise healthy piece of food could be a poison for them. Anyway, when I got home, like so many folks do, I wonder if you did the same thing, Jamie. I started Googling what causes food allergies. And this is a decade ago now. And there was already just beginning to be some research that the human microbiome, that is all the little organisms that live alongside us in our bodies, that messing that up, disrupting that through a whole variety of means, It can lead to bad health outcomes, including the onset of life-threatening food allergies. So that was really the beginning for me of my obsession with finding out and understanding the human microbiome. What about you, Stu? Well, I, I had the unfortunate experience of being given way too many antibiotics. They were medically unnecessary for uh, parasitic infections I picked up making films in Russia and Central Asia. This was back in the 1990s. And uh, these repeated doses of antibiotics just changed my health for the worse. I developed autoimmune thyroid disease, food intolerances, allergies, chronic IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. I lost a tremendous amount of weight as well. So my life was hell for over a decade um, while I was getting prescribed all these antibiotics. And, uh, you know, the, the term microbiome was not used back in those days. It was the 1990s. And, you know, fortunately, the scientific community began to realize that our gut microbes are important. And I wanted to make a a documentary that would be a wake-up call for people about the importance of our gut microbes to our health and the risks that are associated with uh, use of antibiotics, particularly medically unnecessary use and the use in children. What does the term invisible extinction mean? Very dramatic. 
<laughs> well, we played around with a lot of different titles, and so we're, we're glad that you find that one dramatic. Yeah. The Invisible Extinction refers to the way we have been unintentionally waging war against our oldest friends, the tiny bacteria in our bodies, by overusing and misusing antibiotics, by having elective C-sections and making it hard for many moms to breastfeed, by eating highly processed foods. And this extinction is happening to the microbes in our bodies, but it's also happening everywhere else too, like by stripping our soils and sullying our oceans. And when I say that these little organisms are our oldest friends, that is a fact. It's not a metaphor. Old friends in that these bacteria, also fungi, some parasites, they have evolved alongside us for generations, for thousands of years, initially inoculating a baby while passing through the vaginal canal at birth, and then picked up in contact with humans through breastfeeding or human touch and other animals in our environment. They're our immune system. They metabolize our food. They extract our vitamins and energy, like from... Let's say you ate some banana walnut bread for butter, that the nutrients that are extracted from that are extracted by our microbes. The last thing I would say is we're a very visually oriented species. So things that are either very, very big, like climate change, or very, very small, like microbes, invisible to the human eye, they can be hard for us to focus on. And we're hoping that our film helps people do that, helps individuals who don't know what a microbe is learn to understand why it might be something that they care should care about. So the theory of the film is, is that the gut biome can help sort of regulate the metabolizing of sugar among, among other functions. And that's also sort of contextual to sort of type 2 diabetes, I would imagine. Can you sort of elaborate on the science and the theory behind that proposition? Something like one out of every 10 Americans has diabetes. And if you look worldwide, half of all people worldwide with diabetes are undiagnosed. In the USA, about a quarter of people with diabetes are undiagnosed. Those are really serious numbers. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people, and there's huge downsides. It's not just, oh, diabetes leads to earlier mortality. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness worldwide. And, you know, if things continue in their current trends, in, that's, I think this is in Canada as well as in the U.S., something like one in three or one in four American and Canadian adults will have diabetes by 2050. That's too many people with too much human suffering involved. In terms of the theory behind how our microbes influence our likelihood to get diabetes, in our film you see there's a section of the film devoted to just this question. And you see how in Marty Blazer's research, he's demonstrated that there is a close relationship between the more courses of antibiotics you take and your higher likelihood of developing diabetes. We worked with this uh, group of researchers in Israel at the Weizmann Institute who have shown how it's not just the calories that you eat, it's actually the combinations of foods that you eat that can contribute to sugar spikes. Sugar spikes are one of the symptoms of diabetes and your blood sugar getting out of control. And they've determined that there's certain ways that you can alter what you're eating and the combinations of foods you're eating to make those sugar spikes less likely. And I think it would be great if uh, my filmmaking partner, Steve, spoke about his positive experience doing just that. Well, very briefly, I was diagnosed as being pre-diabetic. And one of my favorite foods has always been apples. 
And when I went through the testing that the Israeli scientists have developed, testing your microbiome, I got recommendations on how to alter my diet so that I would not have sugar spikes. And one recommendation was to always eat apples and other sweet things with proteins or fats. And once I did that, my HA1C, which is the uh, blood test marker for diabetes and prediabetes, went down from 5.7 to 5.4. So that was proof positive that, you know, as individuals, we metabolize uh, sugar differently based on our gut microbes. And it's also very important to understand that a diet that is high in sugar actually reduces certain bacteria, certain gut bacteria that are important to regulating sugar, particularly TH17 immune cells. There's a lot of new research that's been going on since our film was made and uh, you know, encourage people to stay on top of that. Some of it is in mice, some of it is, is in humans, but I think we're moving toward a place where the understanding of the microbiome will help enormously in preventing diabetes from developing. So that's an exciting prospect. So what are the ramifications of the theory? Like as you see them, like for you personally, I presume it ended sort of the trek you were on from pre-diabetes to diabetes, but what's the bigger picture? Well, the bigger picture, are we talking just about diabetes or human health? I'll let you decide that. Where do you want to go? I was looking at some recent World Health Organization statistics and their current prognostications are that by 2030, which is not very long from now, that it's going to take half of the world's net worth to treat chronic diseases. And of course, diabetes is one of those chief chronic diseases that we're trying to treat. So from aside from a human health and well-being standpoint, from a purely economic standpoint, we have got to figure out why diseases that have always been around, like diabetes has always been with us, but suddenly about 50 years ago, it's shot through the roof in terms of the percentage of people in all countries that are being affected by this. And you know, there's a lot of very smart people all over the world working on figuring out not only why is this happening, but how to reverse it. And there's a boatload of evidence at this point that aside from you know, overindulging in sweet things, but in messing up our microbes and overusing antibiotics, especially at key points in our developmental lives, often, as Steve said, during childhood, messing up our microbes messes up our physical development, messes up how our bodies are able to use food. And so we need to fix that. We're spending a lot of money. In the U.S., we subsidize cheap and unhealthy foods. We need to move to a system that is more rational, where we're making it easier for people to eat healthily. Right now, it's very easy to eat highly processed foods. It's cheap, they're quick, they provide a lot of calories, but this is not a good plan for us society or as a world moving forward. Agreed. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Dr. Shantanu Gaur, Shauna Linzen, Sarah Schenk, and Stephen Lawrence. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine, which is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.